Welcome to the Gut Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland in the UK. And in my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. So this month I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the June 2018 issue entitled European Evidence-Based Guidelines on Pancreatic Cystic Neoplasms. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Marco Del Ciaro, who was based in the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm in Sweden, but has recently relocated to the University of Colorado in the USA as Head of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Hepato-Pancreatobility Programme. He's discussing this manuscript today on behalf of the European Study Group on Cystic Tumours of the Pancreas. So thanks for joining the podcast today. So these guidelines aim to improve the diagnosis and management of pancreatic cystic neoplasms or PCNs. So firstly, can you remind us of the epidemiology and classification of these lesions? Good morning and many thanks for this interview. Before to start, I would like to remind that this work was possible thanks to almost 100 experts from all around the world. And I need to start all of them. And I want to thank especially Professor Mark Baseling from Amsterdam. And together with him, we followed every step of this project, and he has a major impact on methodology. Pancreatic cystic neoplasma have a large prevalence in general population. And according with the study we have, uh, the prevalence is around 30 40%. Uh, there are a huge number of different pancreatic cystic lesions and almost 90% of them are represented by three major categories, which means IPMN, that represent almost 50% of all PCN, MCN, that represent around 20%, and is typical of a young woman located in the tail of the pancreas, and serocystin neoplasm, that represent 20% of the lesion. So why is there a need for these guidelines? I think there are two major reasons why we need those guidelines. Uh, the, first line is that, the first one is that until now, all the existing guidelines were based mostly on expert opinion and not on evidence. Here we're really trying to make the difference, avoiding to suggest recommendations based on our own experience, and we try to offer to our colleague and the scientific community recommendations based on the current level of evidence. The second reason is that uh, for this project, we are able to involve about 100 experts from all around the world. And we are convinced that that uh, uh, is a very important step uh, to have a more solid guideline useful for everyone and that can be used by everyone. So as you say, this paper represents a consensus analysis of evidence and agreement from an expert panel. So can you tell us the methods that you use to create these guidelines? Yes, the methodology was extremely careful uh, assessed by a committee of experts uh, guided by professional methodologists. And then basically, uh, under the support of Professor Bezelink, we used a model that uh, was successfully used before for the guideline in acute pancreatitis supported by International Association of Pancreatology. So based on literature review, recommendations were formulated including grade rating for the quality of evidence, and considering the low level of evidence associated with some of the answers, we added an expert opinion uh, that was voted online by all the participants. Thanks to that, uh, once the level of the evidence is low, the reader has the opportunity to understand which is the expert opinion regarding this specific topic. 
So the recommendations are split into separate sections and we'll talk through these in turn. So firstly, diagnosis and classification of pancreatic cystic neoplasia. So most of these lesions are diagnosed by cross-sectional imaging. Are there any protein or transcriptome biomarkers in the lesions themselves or other tissues such as blood and stool to aid the diagnosis or monitoring or prognosis analysis? This is a key question. Uh, today there are several studies investigating this area, this topic. There are too few markers in cystic lesion that are used clinically today. Uh, serum level of CA99 has been proposed as a marker able to predict aggregate dysplasia and invasive IPMN, but probably is a late marker. Cystic fluid CA has been proposed to differentiate mucinous by serous lesion. However, today no markers able to guarantee a clear differential diagnosis are available. Unfortunately, we have also uh, not marker able to differentiate uh, the um, timing for surgery. So let's say to associate a grade of dysplasia to a lesion to identify which patient needs surgery and which one doesn't need and when eventually surgery is needed. So what are the main issues within radiological focused diagnosis and monitoring of the lesions? Here, several issues are very important. Uh, I think that the quality of imaging and the experience of the radiologist and even better, the multidisciplinary team that is uh, taking care of the patient is crucial. However, another problem is that considering the high prevalence of those lesions, uh, the social costs are really extremely important. So we know that the majority of those patients will never develop cancer. Anyhow, we are not allowed to stop the follow-up because of the risk of progression. That's, of course, a great problem of allocation resources, especially in diagnostic. So let's now move on to a commonly diagnosed epithelial PCN, namely IPMN, or intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasia. So how common is malignant transformation of these IPMN lesions, and how can we assess for this malignant potential or progression? It depends. Uh, in case, for example, the involvement on the main pancreatic duct, and I'm speaking about main duct EPMN and mixed type EPMN, the risk of cancer is extremely high. And uh, in our guideline, uh, we suggest as a relative indication for surgery, uh, a main the pancreatic duct dilatation already of 5 millimeter to 5 to 9.9, which means that this kind of lesion can really progress and can really come to cancer quite frequently. In the other case, when the secondary dots, so branch dot IPMN are involved, the risk of cancer is extremely low. Uh, unfortunately, we have no marker, as I told before, that can tell us if the lesion will progress or not, and eventually at which stage of progression the lesion is when we observe it by radiology. So today we can make our decision basically only on radiological picture and on clinical science. So that leads on to the next question, which is based on Table 3 within your manuscript, um, and that outlines the characteristics which inform the absolute and relative criteria for surgery for IPMN. So can you briefly summarise these criteria for us now? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in my view, this classification is absolutely uh, in absolute and relative indication for surgery is uh, one of the greatest new terminology introduced in uh, pancreatic cystic lesion. Uh, at the end, we can say that pancreatic cystic lesion can be classified in surgical and not surgical lesion. This is basically the big clinical question when we observe a patient. When we speak about absolute indication, it means that we are performing surgery for a patient that most probably is affected by invasive cancer, invasive IPMN. And uh, so somehow we can say that in this case, we arrived too late, but we are doing surgery for cancer. The absolute indication, as you can see in the, in the, in the paper, 
is a positive cytology for aggregate dysplasia of cancer, solid mass, jaundice, enhanced mural nodule over five millimeter, main pancreatic dot 10 millimeter or larger. Relative indication is a very interesting concept because that doesn't mean we don't need surgery. That means that in a fit patient with long expectancy of life, surgery is needed, potentially and hopefully to prevent cancer. So somehow we collected all the risk factors associated with risk of cancer, but lower risk compared to the previous one, in order to try to make surgery on time when the patient has high-grade dysplasia. And those signs are growth rate uh, uh, over five millimeter per year, increase the level serum of CA99, main pancreatic dust from five to 9.9 .9 millimeter, cystic diameter over four centimeter, and enhancing nodules less than five millimeter in diameter and symptoms. So for those lesions that do not reach surgical criteria at diagnosis, how should these lesions be monitored? Well, uh, let's say that uh, mm, waiting for some biomarker that can help us to make a decision uh, will be, of course, uh, something that everyone hopes. At the moment, unfortunately, we have not those markers. Therefore, we know that those lesions have a tendency to progress, and this risk of progression increases over the time. It's not decreasing. So in other words, we cannot stop to follow those patients and, and unless the patient is not fit for surgery or we have a clear diagnosis of benign lesion, like, for example, uh, serous adenoma. So are there any modifiable risk factors to help prevent the progression of these lesions? Unfortunately not. We could probably speculate that all uh, common uh, uh, lifestyle habitude uh, uh, suggested to prevent cancer can be applicable even in IPMN and cystic lesion, but actually we have not really solid study or evidence supporting that. So are patients with IPMN at increased risk of cancers elsewhere? Uh, some studies suggest that IPMN patients have an increased uh, prevalence of other tumor. However, this is a big uh, selection bias. Considering that IPMN are so common in the general population and are asymptomatic, clearly if a patient had previously another cancer, for example, colorectal cancer, more easily we could do the diagnosis when we do cross-sectional imaging to follow after, for example, an operation, the cancer situation. The study that observed, in contrast, incidence of new tumor in IPMN patient didn't show any association. So we can say that for what we know now, there is not an association between IPMN and other cancer, excluding pancreatic cancer that can happen separately from IPMN in a patient with IPMN. So if IPMN lesions are resected, what follow-up monitoring is required thereafter? It depends by histology of the resected specimen. Uh, to be synthetic, uh, the pancreas remnants should be followed according with the surveillance strategy of an IPMN patient under surveillance. Every six months in case of high-grade dysplasia or main dot IPMN for the first two years and then annually, and every year in the other patient. In case of invasive IPMN, the follow-up uh, that should be applied is the one used for pancreas cancer that is different in different countries. So basically, we leave that door open to the practice for every different uh, physician and country. 
So the manuscript then discusses these issues again for other types of pancreatic cystic neoplasia, namely mucinous cystic neoplasms and serous cystic neoplasms. But we don't have time to discuss these details today in the podcast, but I'd like to direct the listener to the paper. And this can be accessed via the GUT website at www.gut.bmj.com. So finally, important future considerations in this field are the gaps in knowledge around the pathophysiology and management of these lesions. And this should direct research activity. Can you define the main research topics that now need addressed? Yes, as previously uh, discussed, I think what we need today are better markers. That uh, could be important to make a differential diagnosis, to discriminate the different grade of dysplasia, and in order to plan surgery, you really need surgery, and especially at the right time. However, for the near future, uh, I think what we need is collaborate together. We need a large study, we need uh, to create a platform like the one we have, the European Study Group uh, on Cystic Tumor of the Pancreas, that now is shifting to the International Study Group on Cystic Tumor of the Pancreas. My dream for the future, for the near future, is to work even more all together, and hopefully in seven, uh, ten, five years from now, when will be necessary to have a single guideline done all together, that could help all the practitioners, all the colleagues around the world to use the same language and the same practice for those patients. This is actually one of the tasks that with the other main actor of those guidelines, Professor Bezeling, we are working with in several scientific societies. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd just like to thank Professor Marco Del Chiaro for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>